I want you to remember that last time we were together in Matthew, we had witnessed Jesus healing a woman of bleeding and also raising the synagogue official's daughter from the dead. Now today, in Matthew 9, 27 to 31, we witnessed Jesus being followed by two blind men that he will subsequently heal. And again, in this passage, we see that Jesus of Nazareth really is the fulfillment of Isaiah 35, 5 through 6, that he does enable the deaf to hear, the blind to see, and the lame to leap like a deer. However, the focus on this passage, I think, is on the ironic fact that two blind men could see who Jesus was far more clearly than could the scribes and the Pharisees. Two blind men, dear brothers and sisters, knew that Jesus of Nazareth was the son of David, the long-awaited Messiah. And the question posed to everyone who comes after that reads this text is, what about us? Do we understand the significance of what it means that Jesus is the son of David? Do we ourselves believe in him? And by believing in him, we will have, therefore, the greatest healing of all, the forgiveness of sins, and everlasting life. Dear ones, this passage is very simple, but as you will see, it's very profound. Let's begin here in verses 27 through 28. I want you to begin, I'll pull up my pointer here to get it ready. I want you to recall that Jesus had finished raising the synagogue official's daughter from the dead, that little 12-year-old. Well, now he is going to be accosted, in a sense, by two blind men who want healing as well. And that's where we pick it up here, Matthew 9, 27 through 28. It says, as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Now, the first thing I want to point out is notice here you have two blind men that are following Jesus. That's quite an accomplishment. They're blind. Now, the other thing I want you to see, and I'm not doing that as a pun, I want you to understand how important it is that blind men believe that they can be healed by Jesus. To the Jewish person, they understood that something only God could do. Only God could give sight to the blind. We see that, for example, if you're a note-taker in Psalm 146.8. If you're a note-taker, jot down Psalm 146.8, because there it says, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Now, dear ones, notice also they're following him and they're crying out, this would have been very loud, in public, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, notice this cry for mercy, I think, gives the implication that they know that they need more than just a physical healing. They also need to have the forgiveness of sins. And we'll talk about that later. But I also want you to recall that Jesus had just preached 14 verses earlier on the need to be merciful. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will. I want to do a little review. Turn your Bibles back to Matthew 9.14. I'm sorry, Matthew 9.13. 14 verses earlier is Matthew 9.13. Matthew 9.13, please turn your Bibles there. And as you are doing so, recall, this is where Jesus was in the house of Matthew during that banquet where the Pharisees accused Jesus of dining with sinners and with tax gatherers. And here in Matthew 9.13, you see Jesus' response to the Pharisees. He said to them this. 
He said, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's Hosea 6.6. For I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. In other words, Jesus' citation here of Hosea 6.6, that he desired mercy, meant that if you're going to have a true expression of righteousness in your life, you have to be one who expresses and extends mercy. Well, here we're going to find out in this text that Jesus is not just the preacher of mercy, he is the doer of it. He's not just telling others to extend mercy, he extends it himself in very powerful ways leading to healing and to salvation. Now, also notice they not only cry out, have mercy on us, they refer to him as son of David. This is certainly a messianic term. Recall earlier in the book of Matthew, we saw that Jesus of Nazareth came from the genealogy of David. That really proved his messianic credentials. And I think them crying out, Son of David, which is really a messianic reference, explains why Jesus waits to heal them until he's entered into the house. At this point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus is withholding his messianic credentials from the masses, lest they want to make him king without the cross. Jesus comes first to be the suffering servant before he comes a second time to be the conquering king. We'll look at that in just a few slides, why he holds on to something called the messianic secret. Now, I also want you to notice again that Jesus demands the expression of faith by these two blind men. Notice he asked the question, Do you believe that I am able to do this? What's the significance of that question? Again, Psalm 146.8, it's only Yahweh who can heal the blind. If they believe that Jesus can do that, they must believe that he is Yahweh. In fact, notice their response. They said to him, yes, Lord. And I think here, Lord, is not just merely a title of respect, but it is Lord in its full-orbed sense that they do believe that this is, in fact, the Messiah, truly man, but also truly God. It is absolutely an expression of faith. But what absolutely should astound us as we look at this text, I think, what should astound the careful reader of the book of Matthew is that these blind men ironically see Jesus' identity far better than do the scribes, the Pharisees, and the religious leaders of Israel. They see that Jesus is the Messiah, where the scribes, Pharisees, they don't. And so what I want to do on this next slide is I want to give you a little bit of a summary slide to show you that throughout Matthew, it is the unexpected, the lowly, who end up being part of God's elect, who end up seeing who Jesus is, that he's the Messiah, while those who are in positions of authority and power do not. Let's look at the example today. Again, you had blind men. The blind men see who Jesus is. He's the son of David. We're going to come to this again when we get to Matthew 15, 22. Ironically, there's a Canaanite woman, and she can see who Jesus is, even though the religious leaders can't, that he is the son of David, the Messiah. So now you have a foreign woman, a woman, remember, didn't have much status in the eyes of the Israelites, especially being a Canaanite woman, and yet she sees who Jesus is. You'll come back to blind men again in Matthew 20, verse 30. 
more blind men can see who Jesus is than can the religious leaders who are in Israel. Then we come to, in some sense, the coup de grace. In Matthew 21, 15, even children can see that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah. Now, what's so shocking here in the fact that children can see who Jesus is is the context. Let me set up the stage for you with Matthew 21. Let's talk about this passage a little. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, Jesus enters Jerusalem. It's what we refer to as his triumphal entry. I don't like to refer to it as that because they reject him by and large. The triumphal entry is Zechariah 14 when he comes a second time. So he comes into Jerusalem, and then in verses 12 through 13, he casts out the money changers. In verse 14, one verse prior, he heals the deaf and the blind. Now, why is it important that he heals the deaf and the blind? Because Isaiah 35, 5 through 6 predicted that when the Messiah came on the scene of history, the deaf would hear, the blind would see, the lame would leap like a deer. And even the children in the temple understood that this must be the Messiah. In fact, turn your Bibles to Matthew 21, 15. Listen to what happens. The children can see even though the religious leaders can't. Notice Matthew 21, 15. Matthew 21, 15. It says, But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, namely what? Heal the blind and the deaf. It says, And the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. Notice what the children were crying out. Hosanna, Hosanna means save us. They were literally saying, save us, Messiah. And notice the reaction of the religious, religious leaders of Israel. Did they say, well, this is wonderful. Messiah is clearly on the scene of history. We should trust in him. No, it says they were indignant. Unexpected people are part of God's elect, whether it's the blind men the Canaanite, or even children. The irony is they can see Jesus as the Messiah and the religious leaders can't. Why? Well, notice here in Matthew 22, we come to that section, I like to call it, where Jesus plays stump the Pharisee. And remember, the question that he asked them regarding the Messiah is whose son is he? Do you know that they get the answer right? They say he's the son of David. Theologically, they could get the correct answer. But the sad irony is the son of David, the Messiah, who did all the miracles proving that's exactly who he was, was standing in their midst, and they wouldn't believe. But the blind men, the Canaanites, and the children, I shouldn't say the Canaanites, plural, the one Canaanite woman, they could see. Brothers and sisters, I think there's a mini application in all of this. And that is, there's something more than just mere cognitive knowledge when it comes to saving faith. One of the major themes as you widen out to the rest of the Bible, and we'll see this, by the way, in Matthew as well, is the Bible clearly teaches that no human being has the ability to come to faith in Jesus Christ by their own power. For example, Romans 3.11 says that there's none who seeks after God, no, not one. Not one. So what that means is the depravity of the human heart is such that unless God enables people to believe, 
they will not do so. Unless God enables them to repent, they will not do so. Bob DeWay did a wonderful job teaching us that today in Sunday school in 2 Timothy 2.25, that God is the one who grants repentance. So one thing every one of us should wrestle with is, well, what kind of inability do humans have as being born sinners into this world? Well, there's two different types of inability that we should wrestle with. The first type of inability is what we would call natural inability. Natural inability would be like this. God is speaking to us in Chinese, but I only understand English. So therefore, I have no idea what he's saying. And therefore, in some sense, I would have an excuse. I just can't know what he's saying. Now, as I'm saying this, I'm not claiming, because obviously you can tell I don't believe that's the view. But I am not claiming that the Bible doesn't teach that sin affects our entire being. It does. We don't think as we ought to because of sin. We don't reason as we ought to. It affects all of us in all ways. But the primary inability cannot be a natural one. Why? Jot down Romans chapter 10. In Romans chapter 10, it's right around verse 6. Do you recall that the Apostle Paul cites Deuteronomy 30? And he asks this question. Think about it. He asks the question, has God asked you to ascend into the heavens to bring Christ down? Or has he asked you to go down to Sheol to bring Christ up? Of course not. Why is he asking those things? Because that would be impossible for us to do. And and, and so what Paul says, he says, of course he hasn't asked you that. He's asked you to simply believe in the word. Can you and I believe something that has been written or spoken? Absolutely. And what that shows us is that the primary inability of humanity is not that we don't understand what Jesus is saying or God is saying through the scriptures. It's that we don't like it. The Pharisees could pass your theological exam. They could say, oh yeah, Messiah is the son of David. And he's standing in their presence and they can't see it. Why? Because they don't like it. They love their power, their positions, and they love their sin more than they did that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of the promises. This is why Jesus said in John 3, 19, that when the light came into the world, men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. It's not that we can't see the light at all. It's that the light we see, we don't like, we're repulsed because we love our deeds of darkness. It's a moral issue. The irony that we should see in this text is that the blind men, the Canaanite woman, and the children, they could see. Because God had done a work in their heart that he didn't with the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel. Okay, now let's get back to the text. Here, Matthew now focuses our attention on the importance of faith and salvation. Matthew 9, 29 through 31, it says, Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout all that land. Dear ones, notice first of all that Jesus touched their eyes when he healed them. I mention this because remember, there is no formula when it comes to healing in the Gospels. Earlier in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus spoke from afar and he healed the centurion's servant. He didn't even have to be there. Other times, like when we saw him raise the little girl from the dead, he was tender and he 
held her by the hand as she would go from one location to the other back to life. Here he touches. My point in saying that is there's no formula. Do not think that healing comes from religious formula. It comes from the power of Jesus, who is the living God. That's what we are to see. Notice also in blue, Jesus said, It shall be done to you according to your faith. Some have wrongly concluded, especially in the Word of Faith movement, that what that text means is that people are healed in proportion to their faith, not because they have faith. I think that that's wrong. Let me say that again. What this verse is saying, what you see in blue, is not that we are healed in proportion to our faith, but rather because we have faith. What the Word of Faith movement will teach you is that faith is a power. And the more faith you have, the more healing you can have. So if you have a little faith, well, maybe God will help you overcome hiccups. But that'd be about it. But if you have great faith, wow, you can, every ailment that you have can be cured. No, that's not the point that Jesus is making. These men had faith and they were healed. It's because they had faith they were healed. And the implication is not just physical, but also the forgiveness of sins. That goes back to their crying out for mercy. Dear ones, the Bible doesn't teach that you and I have great faith in a little Savior. But what saves us can be even just a little faith in a great Savior. That's what the Bible's teaching. Notice verse 30. Again, it says their eyes are open. They could now see. But right away, it says Jesus sternly warned them not to let anyone know about this. The term there for sternly warned is really rare. Embri maomai. Embri maomai is a very unique term, and it means just what it says here. It's sternly warned. This is an emotional indignation that Jesus has. In fact, some scholars will say that it's almost a visible and audible snorting. Picture Jesus almost turning red. He is fired up about this. He does not want them to let anyone know about this healing. And the question is why? Why? Well, I think one of the reasons, and this is what we'll look at in the next slide, is the risk at this time for the masses is they wanted a Messiah to be the king to kick out the Romans, not a Messiah who would atone for their sin. And Jesus knew it. And so that's why he wants at this point his messianic status to be hidden. Why? Because it would do damage to the masses. We'll talk more about that on the next slide. But I also want to wrestle with the fact that in verse 31, it records the very first act of these two blind men who came to faith, and I think there's no question that these are those who belong to Christ, but they end up disobeying. since they went out and spread the news about him throughout all that land. Now, this has raised two possible interpretations. Some scholars have gone so far as to say, well, perhaps when Jesus said, don't tell anybody about this, it was a form of reverse psychology. Like you would do like with a three-year-old, you say, hey, whatever you do, don't eat the cookie in the cookie jar. And you know exactly that that's what they're going to do. Some have thought, well, maybe that's what Jesus was doing, knowing that the men would certainly go out and tell everyone. I don't think so. I don't think Jesus is duplicitous in his speech. He's the God who cannot lie or fib, right? So I think it's obvious that these men are simply disobeying, but I want you to think about the human frailty that they have. 
Oh, yes, Jesus did a miraculous work. Think about what it would be like in that culture to be blind. And all of a sudden you can see. It would be very difficult also to hide that from your loved ones and your friends. What do you, what do you start doing? Pretending that you can't see? Start, keep bumping into things? So again, they disobeyed. They shouldn't have said anything. But it was going to be very difficult to hide the fact that two men who physically couldn't see, now they could. Brothers and sisters, let's ask ourselves, why does Jesus not want people in the masses, I'm talking about the masses of Israelites, to know at this point that he is the Messiah? Often it's referred to, notice on the screen, as the messianic secret. Well, what I want to do is put up a couple of passages that talk about this, and I think we can come to a conclusion. Let's put up the first text. The first text is out of Matthew chapter 16. And I want you to remember, before I put it up, Matthew 16 is about the confession of Peter primarily at Caesarea Philippi. Remember, Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist or one of the prophets. And then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus responds, he says, Peter, this is not revealed to you by flesh, but my Father in heaven. And then he proceeds to tell him and the rest of the disciples who were there that he is going to have to suffer and die on a cross. That's at Caesarea Philippi. And so after this, in Matthew 16, 20, it says, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Remember, Christos here, it's synonymous with Messiah, synonymous. He's telling them, don't let anyone know I'm the Messiah. Now, what do we do with that? Well, I want to read to you the words of Leon Morris. For those of you who don't know Leon Morris, he was an evangelical scholar from Australia. He lived into his late 90s. He was still writing commentaries. You will see him in glory. Listen to what Leon Morris said. I think it's well said. It's better than I can say it. Leon Morris said this. Regarding this passage, he said, quote, there is some emphasis on the he in the expression that he was the Messiah, meaning he and no other was the Messiah. Leon Morris continuing, he says, this was a fact and he had admitted it among the disciples, but the term could all too easily be misinterpreted and understood, for example, in political terms. If the disciples had gone out proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah, both they and their hearers would have thought of a glorious conquering Messiah. They would have looked for armies and bloodshed and victories. To know that Jesus was the Messiah was one thing. To understand what Messiahship really meant was quite another. Unquote. Well said, our Australian friend Leon Morris. I think that's exactly right. Brothers and sisters, at this point, Jesus is concealing from the masses for their own good, that he's the Messiah. Because they would want to make him king to crush the Romans, not the suffering servant to remove their sin. Jesus' whole ministry is dedicated to going to the cross first so that you and I could have forgiveness of sins, atonement. That's the goal. Uh, let me show you another example of this. Remember one chapter later, Jesus in Matthew 17 is on the Mount of Transfiguration. On the Mount of Transfiguration, what we have is a foreshadowing of the parousia of Jesus Christ. That is his return. It's a foreshadowing of that. In fact, Peter uses 
the transfiguration event in 2 Peter 1 as supreme evidence that Jesus, the Messiah, must return to rule over the nations with a rod of iron, as it says in Psalm 2.9. It's absolute proof of that. But remember, as Jesus comes down, here you have Peter, James, and John, the apostles that were there. They're given great insight into who Christ is. They know exactly what's going on. I, I shouldn't say exactly, but they know Jesus is the one who's returning. They still have questions, but they know he's the one who's returning. So listen to what Jesus says on the way down from the mountain. It says, as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Brothers and sisters, again, Jesus was the Messiah. There's no question. But I want you to think about the way that he is protecting the masses from their own misunderstanding of who the Messiah is. If they want to make Jesus the king without the cross, they're going to be left in their sins. And I want you to think about this, Jesus concealing himself in his messianic title from the masses is therefore a great act of mercy. Bob DeWay has been teaching us in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. And think about what he's been teaching us about how you and I as believers have certain privileges, we have knowledge and liberties that some other weaker Christians aren't aware of. And what we've learned is that we should not use that knowledge to cause the other ones to stumble. Jesus loves people so much that he knows if they would know that he's the Messiah, that it would do them harm because they don't understand enough who the Messiah truly is. That's the kind of love and concern that Jesus has for other people. And brothers and sisters, if we're going to follow in his footsteps and we're going to learn from what we learn in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, we have to be the same. We have to be those who look out for the interest of others. Okay, now let's come to some applications. I have two of them for you this morning. Number one, we must understand the significance of Jesus being the son of David, just as the two blind men did. The blind men had their theology right, and it's important that we do, that we see the full-orbed understanding of what it means to call Jesus the son of David, therefore the Messiah. We're going to unpack some of that today. Number two, we must know that the ultimate healing is only had by faith alone. The only way that anyone can be attached to the son of David who is coming again to rule and to reign and to have the ultimate healing is by faith alone. If you're going to try it by works or some other religious plan, you will not be connected to the son of David. You will be his enemy rather than one who belongs to him in the kingdom. Okay, so let's begin with number one. I want to lay out how important the Davidic covenant is and how important it was that a son of David would come not only to remove our sins, but also to rule and reign. And I want you to think about all through the Bible in the book of Genesis and the Old Testament, how exciting and important it was that a son would be born. How many times do you see that phrase, a son was born? Think about the very first prophecy in the entire Bible is Genesis 3.15. After Adam and Eve sinned, the promise is that God would send forth what? the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman is going to come and crush the serpent's head. So if you had just a Bible that went up to Genesis 3.15, you would know that God created all things, that humanity rebelled against him, and that one day a seed of a woman was going to come and crush 
the rebellion. And so in a sense, the rest of the Bible is details. In Genesis chapter 12, we begin to see that the seed of the woman is going to be a son that comes from Abraham. Then it's going to be a son that comes from Isaac. Then it's going to be a son that comes from Jacob. And then of the 12 tribes of Jacob of Israel, in Genesis 49.10, we see the Messiah, the one who's going to crush the work of the serpent, is going to be a son that comes from Judah. Well, then when we get to 2 Samuel 7, and that's what we're looking at here, you find of all of the families of the tribe of Judah, it's going to be the family of David. Family of David is where the Messiah is going to be, the one who crushes the serpent. Let's look at 2 Samuel 7, 14 through 16. Now, here's a promise that God gave directly here to David. Of course, Nathaniel the prophet was involved. Notice what he said, 2 Samuel 7, 14 through 16. The Lord said, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Dear ones, the first thing I want you to see in this text is notice here in blue, it says, he will be a son to me. Now, of course, here we know that this is referring not to the Messiah immediately, but to Solomon. Why? Well, notice it says, when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod and the strokes of the sons of men. So yes, Solomon is going to be this promised son and many sons after that that are going to be in the lineage of David. But what I want you to see here is there's something different about the promise given to the Davidic son like Solomon. Notice verse 15, he says, But my loving kindness shall not depart from him the way I took it away from Saul. What happened with Saul is when Saul rebelled against God, God said, that's enough, you're done. But he's not going to do that with this son. In fact, he's going to keep him within his loving kindness. The term loving kindness there is a very important Hebrew term, chesed. Chesed. Remember, chesed, the root of that is grace or mercy. They both go hand in hand. So the point is, even when this son rebels, God is not going to withdraw his grace and mercy. So this is an unconditional promise that even though you have human failure, God is still going to be what? He's going to be faithful. He's going to be faithful to the promise even when there's human failure. Now notice here in verse 16, the promise isn't just in the near term, it's forevermore. He says of David, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Dear ones, the permanence of the throne of this future David, this son of David, this Messiah, leads to a conclusion by David that this cannot be fulfilled in the near term. It must be fulfilled in the far term through the Messiah. That's what David concludes. Now, how do I know that? Because David says so. Let me show you David's reaction. This is an astonishing reaction that David has to the promise that God just gave. Notice what he says, 2 Samuel seven eighteen through 19. It says, Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? 
And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. And this is the custom of man, O Lord God. First thing I want you to notice in this text is notice the great humility that David has. Who am I, O Lord? That reminds me, do you remember when Mephibosheth was brought forth to David? And he should have been put to death. Mephibosheth, the shameful one from Lodabar, from nowhere. And he says, who am I but a dead dog to eat at the king's table? That's who David is before the Lord. Who am I, O Lord God? Now, the other thing I want you to notice, notice the term Adonai, that's Lord. Here's Yahweh. It's literally Adonai Yahweh. The first time Adonai Yahweh is ever used in the Bible is Genesis 15. Genesis 15, where Abraham was given the unconditional promise, and who alone walked the blood path? It was God. So here, once again, we have a universal promise, and as David realizes it, he uses a phrase for God that began in Genesis 15. O Adonai Yahweh, who am I? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? How far did David come? Oh, he went a long ways. Did he not start as a little shepherd boy in Bethlehem? Yes, he did. And did God not preserve him? You get the idea that he was in plenty of scraps, even with bear and other animals, and he survived. And of course, there was that time that he stood against Goliath the giant, and he defeated him. And then there was all those times that Saul, the wicked man, trying to wipe him out, and God preserved him. And then there's that little episode in 2 Samuel 5, where David conquers over the Jebusites, and this little shepherd boy from Bethlehem is installed as Yahweh's king over all Israel, therefore the world. That's how far God brought him. And yet notice what he says, and yet this was insignificant in your eyes. You did all this for me, and yet what you're talking about here in 2 Samuel 7, O Lord, far exceeds any of that. How magnificent are the promises that God gave to David? They far outweigh anything that he experienced this far, and he was the king of Israel. That's how important the promises are. Notice he says, For you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning what? Concerning the distant future. The distant future, Rahok. This isn't going to be something that's fulfilled in Solomon in the near term. David knew that this had to be fulfilled ultimately by the Messiah in the far term. And that should bring to our minds, remember in Acts chapter 2, when the apostle Peter is preaching at Pentecost, I'm thinking around verse 30, 31. Do you remember Peter cites Psalm 1610 that David wrote? And remember Psalm 1610 says that the Holy One would not see decay, meaning he has to be raised from the dead. And the apostle Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, said that David was a prophet and knew that that text was not about himself, but it was about the Messiah. David is a prophet and he knew that the promise of the son that would establish his kingdom forever wasn't going to be fulfilled in the near term by Solomon, but it was going to be in the distant future by the Messiah. Now, how does David react here in verse 19? I love this. He says, and this is the custom of man, O Lord God. I, don't, I shouldn't have used the NASB. The ESV gets it very clear. Literally in the Hebrew, the term custom there is Torah. 
So literally, it should be rendered, and this is the instruction for all mankind, O Lord God. That's David's reaction. How important is the Davidic promise that the Messiah comes as a son of David? It's instruction for all mankind. Not just for Jews, not just for Gentiles, it's Jews and Gentiles. Not just for men, and no, it's for men and women. It's for men, it's for women, it's for children, it's for Jews, it's for Gentiles, it's for all people. If you don't come to the son of David by faith, you have no part with God. It's instruction for all mankind, the idea is forevermore. That's how important the Davidic promise is. And today, the irony is in Matthew chapter 9, two blind men could see who Jesus was, the son of David, and all that that meant, and the religious leaders of Israel could not. Now, let's keep going. Let's talk more about the son of David, who he was to be and what he was to do. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10. Remember, as we read what happened to David here, the promise given to him, that's about 1,000 B.C., Let's fast forward to Isaiah 11, 1 through 10, about 300 years ahead in, fu- in the future. Isaiah 11, 1 through 10, please turn there. Why? Because you're learning messianic doctrine. Messianic doc- doctrine about who he would be and what he would do is taught in the prophets. So Isaiah 11, 1, 10, we see that the Messiah was going to be a son of David, but he's also going to be the source of David. Isaiah 11, notice verse 1. It says here, the great promise is a shoot shall come from the stump of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now, let's just stop there in verse 1. Does everyone see where it says shoot? The term shoot there, coter, means just that. It's a little shoot that would come from a stump of a tree that had fallen. How many of you have ever chopped down a tree and you have the tree and then you see these little shoots that come out of them? There's little plants that want to develop out of them. Well, that's exactly how the Messiah is depicted. The idea then is he's going to be a physical descendant. Notice it says, a shoot shall come from the stump of Jesse. Who is Jesse? Well, that's David's father. So this is a fancy way of saying there's going to be a human that comes from the lineage of David. Notice also he's referred to in this text as a branch. That's where they get the idea of the messianic branch. The term branch Netzer. Netzer means branch. Why is that important? Because Jesus grows up in Branchville. That's what Nazareth is. That's what Matthew's pointing out in Matthew 2.23. The irony is the Davidic branch grows up in Branchville, a fulfillment of prophecy. It's, it's astonishing. Now notice, what's he going to be like, this messianic branch who comes from Branchville, as it were? Notice verse 2, it says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Notice he says he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Stop there. Notice where it says he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and slay the wicked with the lips of his mouth. That's cited by Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2.8 when Messiah comes and wipes out the Antichrist. Revelation 19.11 through 21, when Messiah returns, that's what he does to the enemies of God. Why? He's the conquering king. 
That's the second advent. Notice verse 5. It says, righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. Now notice this. This is what his kingdom will be like. How important is this in light of what we see Israel going through today? The wolf shall live with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. Notice verse 7, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den, and they will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Let's stop there. Is that happening now? Is that happening now? Is that the state that Israel's in now? How about Isaiah 2, where it says, The swords will be beat into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks, and no longer shall the nations learn war. Well, that obviously isn't happening now in Israel, is it? So why do amillennialists, pastors, and theologians say it is happening now? Try to go preach that to the people living in Israel and say, Oh, by the way, the swords have been beat into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks. Well, they say, well, actually, it's the rain is just through the church. It's not in Israel. It's just on the church. Well, tell that to the parents who lost their children, to the deranged, transgendered person in Nashville, Tennessee, some months ago. Say, hey, you're in the kingdom of God. Is that a true gospel? Is that a true gospel? That Jesus is currently reigning upon the earth? Of course it's not. Of course it's not. Notice it says on that day, verse 10, the root, the term shoresh there, means source. So we went from someone in verse 1 who came from David. Now you have the source of David. How can you have one person come from David but also be the source of David? He's the God-man. That's how you have it. Notice on that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal to the peoples, the nations shall inquire of him, and his dwelling shall be glorious. Is that happening now? Of course it's not. But brothers and sisters, how significant is it that Jesus is the son of David who comes to do all these things? It's very significant. He's the one who brings the kingdom. He's the one who brings salvation. He's the one who's going to bring us our salvation. Okay, now, from there, I want to turn your attention to Paul. The apostle Paul here is preaching at Pisidian Antioch, and I want you to see what he says regarding David. It says after, now remember here, Paul is talking about the history of Israel. It says after he, that's God, had removed him, that's Saul, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Verse 23, Paul wrote, from the descendants of this man, According to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. Notice the phrase, from the descendants of this man. The term descendants there is sperma. It's where we get our term seed. Why is that important? You could literally render it from the seed of this man. According to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. Because it connects us to the seed promise. The very first promise was Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman is going to come and crush the serpent's head. And we see the seed is going to come from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, from Judah. Second Samuel 7, he comes from David. And as we read today in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus 
was seen by the blind men, but not the religious leaders of Israel. Brothers and sisters, let it be known today that for those who do not see who Jesus is, the son of David, there's no hope for them. There's no salvation. Life is going to be temporary and fleeting, and then they go off into eternity. So, brothers and sisters, what we need to do then is we have to realize that the only way that any of us can be spared is by belonging to Jesus of Nazareth by faith. So today, I know I'm preaching to the choir for those of you here, but perhaps there are some listening to me. And perhaps to you, Jesus is not merely who he claims to be in the scriptures, but he's something else that you've invented. Maybe he's just a good man or a founder of a new religion or perhaps a wise sage who came to help you to live a better life. What you need to know is Jesus is far more than that. He is what's revealed in the scriptures. We have to trust in him for salvation. Why? Because Jesus commanded it. Mark 1.15, notice here, Jesus doesn't give a suggestion or a helpful hint on how we are to be saved. He gives a command. This is saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Notice here, he says that the kingdom of God is at hand. Why does he say that? Because after the first advent, the next agenda on God's redemptive calendar after the ascension of Christ is the return of Christ in the clouds to rapture his church, the parousia, the beginning of it. That's the next. And so what should every person do? Well, they should repent and believe in the gospel. Today we learn from Bob in Sunday school that repentance is something that's only granted by God. But what I want to do here is I want to focus on the relationship between repentance and believing. What I believe is that in the scriptures, if you unpack all of the data, repentance and faith are two sides of the salvific coin. In other words, if you repent, you're repenting unto having faith or saving belief. And if you believe in Christ, it's because you've repented. They go hand in hand. The term repent there, meto no eo, meta can mean after. No eo is thinking. It's an afterthought, but it's not an afterthought in the sense of being haphazard. The idea is it's a change of the mind. What repentance first and foremost is, is a change of mind for those who are in idolatry. You change your mind and you turn to God in his terms. That's the idea. The primary idea of repentance is a change of mind, turning from idolatry and all that's associated with it, and turn to God in his terms, which is what? Belief in the gospel. So there's not two different things. They're synonymous. They go hand in hand like peanut butter and jelly, like Amos and Andy, like Laurel and Hardy. You can probably think of some others. That's how they go hand in hand. Now, what, what should you believe in? Well, you should believe in the gospel. The gospel, is, that's the term euangelion. That's where we get our term evangelical, and it means good news. But it's not just any old good news. It's not the good news that we have good weather, or the Vikings are going to get a good draft choice because our season's so horrible. It's not that kind of good news. It's the good news centered on the person and work of Jesus, who he is and what he did. And if you ever get confused as to what the gospel is, a passage I would recommend to go to is 2 Timothy 2.8. 2 Timothy 2.8 focuses on the person and the work of Jesus. Listen to what Paul said. He said, remember Jesus Christ, remember that means Messiah, risen from the dead, that's his work, now, here's his person. 
descendant of David, according to my gospel. The gospel is the person and work of Jesus. First of all, let's look at the work. Notice the work here is cited as him being risen from the dead. And as you're sitting there, you might think, well, wait a minute, Eric. Why doesn't Paul mention the fact that Jesus lived a perfect life? The fact that he did many miraculous deeds. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He walked on water. He went to a cross and he died a substitutionary atonement because that's all summarized under risen from the dead. Risen from the dead functions like a synecdoche where the part refers to the whole. If I say to you, drive up with your car, I say, hey, you've got nice wheels. You don't say to me, hey, my car's more than wheels. It's got a steering wheel and it's got handles and all these other things. No, the wheels represents the entirety of the car. In the same way, the risen from the dead phrase represents all that Christ has done. It's the pinnacle claim. Think of another analogy. Let's say you say a football team won the Super Bowl. Well, implied in them winning the Super Bowl is they probably had a pretty good season. It's a capstone and a summary of all that they had accomplished that year. Jesus risen from the dead is a capstone summary of his work. So the gospel is the work of Christ, but it's also what? It's the person of Christ. Descendant of David and all that that means that we saw here today, that was the Apostle Paul's gospel. Today, don't be like the religious leaders of Israel who, although they should have known because they knew the Scriptures, denied Jesus was the son of David. Be like the blind men, the Canaanite woman, like the children who could see. Trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the son of David, and you will have the forgiveness of sins and absolute assurance of everlasting life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for these promises. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you've sent your son, the son of David, as the Messiah, fulfilling all of your promises. And we do recognize that your promises are still for the future as well. We do pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would come, come through the clouds, save us, bring us home, and bring your kingdom to Israel just as your disciples taught. We pray that you would do this for us. We also pray, Heavenly Father, for loved ones, family members, friends that don't know you. We pray that you would give us boldness to give them the gospel, that they would believe, regenerate their hearts before us, so that they also may see who Jesus is, the Messiah, the Son of David. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.